kneel before Zod. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Strange Behavior, a.k.a. Dead Kids. Released October 16th, 1981, it was written by Bill Condon and Michael Laughlin, or Laughlin, or Laghelin, <laughs> directed by Laughlin, and released by GUO Film Distributors. That's Greater Union Organization. It's the Australian place that's done a couple of our Australian releases so far. This is also episode 314, which makes this our Pi Day episode. Hey! But we missed Pi Day. And Pi Day was three days ago. Because we're recording 3.14 days ago. On St. Patty's <laughs> Day. I'd have to do the math, but I think <laughs> you are correct. 3.14159 days ago. No. Keep going. Uh, two, <laughs> three, stop, three stop. 3.14592. I don't know. It's like 6535. Supposedly, this was the first horror film to come out of New Zealand. Like, ever. The first oh, okay. horror film, feature film. Though it is set in Galesburg, Illinois. It was shot under the title Dead Kids, but released in America as Strange Behavior. Though, bizarrely, the novelization was released under the title School Days. <laughs> what? Uh, spelled it's spelled not even weird. school year. There's no school in this movie. D-A-Y-S or D-A-Z? D-A-Y-S. Okay. But they don't, like... We go to school, I guess. They go to a college that they do not attend. I guess we do have one classroom scene. Yeah. Is this college? I thought it was high school. I think it's, it's high, high school. school at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. But they go to a college in the film. Right. The research place is the college. Right. It's the okay. Galesburg College campus. It was intended as the start of an unofficial horror trilogy with Strange in each title. Two years later, it was followed by Strange Invaders. But the third film, The Adventures of Philip Strange, was never made. Apparently, it was a World War II spy thriller with sci-fi elements. What? How does that relate to this? It doesn't relate to this, but it was a horror film with Strange in the title. The second film, Strange Invaders, is kind of a Invasion of the Body Snatchers yeah. type movie. It has nothing to do with this either. But if you start a trilogy with two movies that start with the word Strange, two words with Strange... That it should be Strange at the beginning? Yeah. I don't disagree. But I don't understand how it's a trilogy if it's not related to each other. It's like the Cornetto trilogy. Yeah, but they are related to each other in that they at least contain the same people. They're the same actors, but they're not playing the same no, parts. No, no, I know, but at least they're the same actors. I mean, it sounds like... There's a like... lot of the same actors in Strange Invaders. Okay. Louise Fletcher comes back. Dan mm -hmm. Shore comes back. Charles Lane comes back. The version of the film we watch starts with the New Zealand title card, Dead Kids. We open on a boy named Brian sitting down at a desk in his bedroom. His mom calls up to announce she's leaving the house, so he takes a break from his homework and lights up a cigarette. He cranks the radio, but the power goes out almost immediately. Oh, shit. He explores downstairs in the dark, and he can hear someone in the shadows. He lights a candle and gets distracted making shadow puppets in the kitchen <laughs> as someone sneaks up behind him. The second shadow stabs him several times in the head, and we see the face of the killer as he blows out the candle. This is the last time we'll see this person in the film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, as last time we'll see either of them. That's true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah By fair. the way, the, the kid who got stabbed in the head is Bill Condon, the guy who wrote the movie. 
Academy Award winning Bill Condon. Yes. He directed the Beauty and the Beast remake, Bill Condon. Really? Yeah. Same guy? Yep. Kid who the kid who is making shadow puppets here <laughs> just got stabbed to death. They're not even good shadow puppets. No, well, that explains a lot about the Beauty and the Beast remake. <laughs> it's basically I, the same like, art. He's form. like, I want them to look like this. And he's, he's like, I can't tell what that puppets. is. But you would think Let's like, just get Emma Watson. I don't know what he's doing. I feel like you don't put shadow puppets in your random scene unless it's like, oh, this guy's got this weird hidden talent of like shadow puppets. You know what's funny is that <laughs> The first kill in Strange Invaders also involves shadow puppets no. on the wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's another scene at the beginning where a person's exploring a house and there's shadows on the wall that indicate the person's getting killed. We cut to John Brady, played by Michael Murphy, being roused out of bed in the morning. He's quickly on the phone with someone, and he and his teenage son, Pete Brady, fight over the use of their one small bathroom. And for some reason, Pete's just walking around the house, just yeah. fully dong out, wandering around naked. The lights flicker repeatedly in their home. Dad tells son that he needs to get out of town and get the real college experience elsewhere, but Pete would rather apply right here in town at the local college. Also, he's trimming his toenails at the, at the table, table, and he's not even like making an effort to like to like catch or check. No, the he's trajectory. flicking them off over his shoulder after. It's just like ugh. I feel like this is to indicate that there is no mother in their life. Yeah, but then a mother walks in. Yeah, I mean a mother of sorts. Yeah, but she's not the mom yeah not the mama that pete hits over with the head of the prank man <laughs> that does not happen in the scene that's later no that doesn't happen at all over breakfast they speak with mrs haskell who i guess is their housekeeper i guess she's the housekeeper to the whole town of galesburg yeah exactly like she she seems to indicate that she picks up groceries and delivers groceries all over the neighborhood yeah but she doesn't like clean the house <laughs> she's just delivering groceries but he's complaining about how dirty the floor is and she's like you haven't even seen a dirty floor and it's like who are you again what is your job there are multiple women in this movie who take care of guys and i am confused about yeah. this mm -hmm. well it's like they're in like a commune situation because they live in a house that has like it's a house from the outside but inside there's multiple living spaces I mean, it's like that, a duplex that's that's a thing that used to happen and 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 there used to be but they share all the space like the people just walk in and out of each other's apartments. Right, but then there used to be situations where, like, you would let out those rooms, and then there mm. would be a woman that would essentially be the the caretaker of the home right. and would cook all the communal meals and yeah. all that stuff. Like, I don't think that that's the weird part, but the fact that there's multiple families that have women taking care of them that yeah. aren't their, like, wife or mother, it's just weird. The, the chief of police needs everyone to check in and take care of his house for him. Mm -hmm. She mentions another house she works at, the Hoffmans. She's been hired to buy their groceries, and apparently they've left their children home alone during an extended trip, and they never eat anything she buys. Both father and son leave the room while she's still complaining about it. Well, she says they only eat Twinkies. It's like, are you buying the Twinkies? Yeah. Because <laughs> if you're buying them Twinkies... It's your own yeah. fault. <laughs> yeah. Or if they're constantly out of Twinkies, then maybe they're not eating. <laughs> maybe they're dead. Dead kids. Dead kids. <laughs> A.K.A. Dead Kids. Pete picks up a friend, Oliver, from a mortuary on the way to school. Looks like he works the night shift, and he flicks off the light for the building on his way out. When John gets to work at a police station, a fellow officer, Donovan, the old man, tells him that the mayor's son is missing. Sorry, uh, there, there's there's stuff like to going, on, going on in this police station. Oh, okay. Because they open up a refrigerator that is literally packed, to, packed with beer. Yeah. 
Like, I mean, like it's system- like the fridge from burnt offerings. It just knows what they want. Well, well more so than that, it, it's it's like the refrigerator in a in like a grocery store where everything's like in neat, perfect rows. Oh, nice! But it's completely filled. And, and I'm sure they have a lady that comes by in the morning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Mrs. Haskell. <laughs> She buys his beer. This is like I was like I wasn't sure if he was an actual cop. Yeah, like because I don't understand what this office is because it doesn't seem like a police station at all. Yeah, but he is the chief of police. Here. Yeah, and but then a guy just brings him a beer while he's on duty. It's yeah. like what is this? In class, a teacher hands graded papers back to each student, commenting on their grades as he goes. Pete's friend Oliver gets the only compliment. A fat kid named Waldo in an army jacket picks on Oliver for getting good grades. The teacher asks Pete to stay after class for a chat. He reminds Pete to finish his college applications because he's a star student, and Pete says his dad doesn't approve of his school choices. The teacher mentions that Pete's dad was also a great student and got accepted to several Ivy League schools but never left town because he met Pete's mom and stayed here for her. Is the implication that this teacher is also the teacher who taught his father? I think so. He doesn't seem old enough to be. He doesn't seem old. Also... Is this a thing that happens? Because this isn't the only time I've seen this in a movie. Where the teachers are invested in the college application process? No, where the teacher, like, insults students. Oh, like, yeah, Calling attention to them. Like, it's like, oh, you did terrible. You're a terrible student. Like, like. You didn't that, have teachers that insulted you I ever? Never... I, def- <laughs> I definitely had at least one teacher that, that did that as he would give papers back. He would make shitty comments about it. And then he went to prison. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> not for insulting kids though yeah, something yeah. significant that worse. was legal yeah <laughs> no but i've never had a teacher who like i maybe have had like the occasional like see me after class or we need to discuss kind of thing yeah. but i've never had a teacher who just like as they were handing back papers said like yeah like i mean the, the teacher i'm thinking of literally would give me a paper back and be like i guess you didn't fucking care like wow yeah he would say shit like that all the time in class yeah wow he was a nightmare it's crazy. He also won Ben Stein's money. <laughs> <laughs> but now we know what he used it for. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Outside the classroom, Pete mentions to Oliver that he can't afford the application fee to nearby Galesburg College, and Oliver says he has a solution. They offer money to test subjects at a laboratory on the college campus. You can't afford an application to the local college? Like, yeah. just get a job, dude. Do you, do you have to pay to submit college applications? I mean, I, I think you oh, do, yeah. but... What? I would think it would be more expensive depending on the college if you're going to a state school. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I don't know that you have to pay for for like a community college or like a state school, okay. but definitely for the more prestigious schools, there are yeah. kind of hefty fees. That's I how think. they oh, keep man. the lights on over there. God, see, like, or Yale. Yeah, I was gonna say like it shows how just like uneducated and and pedestrian and then I am. <laughs> I well, that's because you couldn't afford the applications. I know, apparently. If you could afford the applications, you would know what they cost. Look, I went to a Cal State school, and I am proud. <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud of you, too. Good job. We went to the same school, Patrick. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it's kind of a racket, because they get, you know, thousands and thousands of mm-hmm. applications, and they reject most of them, but they get to keep those fees from all of them. Yeah. It's, it's like every screenwriting contest. <laughs> They're like... <laughs> Pay us $2,000 to enter this contest. We got 6,000 entries, and the grand prize is $1,000. <laughs> or, or the DMV. It's like, pay to register your car every year. It's like, can I just pay it once, and I'll tell you if I don't have it anymore? <laughs> nope. Clear and unnatural picture begins to form in my mind. They're going to strap me into some chair and poke around with my gray Would cell. Would you just yeah. wait a minute and listen to me? Two sessions, two days, 100 bucks a day. 
I mean, listen, I did the first one already, and look at me. You're very ugly. Very ugly. You know, you know the biggest question in my life is what to do with $200. Do you recall the last time we saw a character subject themselves to experiments to raise money for college? Oh, shit. I do, but I can't remember what the movie was now. What was it? Um, because it was um, he, he went to he went to this woman and like then they end up he ends up falling in love with the lab tech, and uh, yeah, yeah like true. he's staying in a dorm like a, a house like a not a frat house but a house like on the campus. God. I don't remember this at all. Yeah, I I, I can't picture. Do you remember who he was played by? Um, it was was it Busey? It was Busey. Gary Busey. Oh, uh. Fooling around? That's right. Nice. Good job. <laughs> they sneak into a classroom during a lecture from a film projection of a professor. Oliver explains the man is long dead. A woman at the front of the class prepares a chicken in accordance with the instructions on the film. She is aided by I, an I elderly... I think we should clarify that this is a live chicken. And she's not like preparing a chicken dinner yeah. or something <laughs> according to the instructions. I don't know what they're going to do with this chicken. <laughs> <laughs> she is aided by an elderly lab assistant. The chicken has an electrode attached to its head, and the man on the film gives the chicken instructions, and it seems to follow them. Simmer. <laughs> Brown. <laughs> Broil 350 for 20 minutes. And the chicken just does it. It's pretty cool. Please raise your right leg. It's kidding, right? Now raise them both. Ah, stupid chicken. Look, he fell over. He doesn't tell the chicken to put his leg down. So, like, this chicken... Oh, that's true. Oh, Simon didn't say stupid fucking chicken. That's what I was thinking. (laughs) I'm like, if the chicken was... So, okay, there's one of two things happening here. Either the chicken is smart enough to know that it has to put the one leg down before it lifts the other leg, or it will fall over. Or it's not actually following your instructions. Or this chicken has hokey pokey before. <laughs> the shocked students applaud the ghost of the professor and the class is excused. After class, Oliver approaches the scientist woman, Mrs. Parkinson, and announces that he has brought her another subject as requested. Parkinson recognizes Pete's last name and asks if his father, John, knows he signed up for this. No, that's the idea. Okay, good. We get more driving footage of Pete, always from the back seat and the POV from the center of the back seat and with Tangerine Dream's atmospheric humming score underneath. I really like all the music the whole way throughout this movie. Pete drives home and speaks with a neighbor, I think, Barbara Moorhead, played by Louise Fletcher. He tells her he's getting ready for a party and he gives her a quick peck on the cheek. What is the relationship between these two characters? I am- Neighbor lady who knows my dad. Who I kiss sometimes. Wait, is this the one that later he says, like, when are you going to marry my dad? Yeah. Yeah. So are they dating? It doesn't seem like it. I can't tell. On their way to the party, they pass a house, and Oliver is excited to recognize it as the home of Lucy Brown, who he heard gets around. She's only 13, for Christ's sakes. No problem there. Ollie, you've got a very sick mind. A very sick mind. Wow. Just drive this guy right to the police. Your dad. (laughs) Inside the house, we see the Brown parents watching TV, (laughs) <laughs> that sounded weird. 
<laughs> um, they're just they're just people watching television. Inside the house, we see the brown parents watching. Just say the browns. The browns. <laughs> Inside the house, we see the browns watching TV, and a camera floats up to Lucy's bedroom window as she climbs into a tree in her front yard to sneak out to the party. And her dad's got like like pin drop hearing like yeah the moment she like puts her hands on the wood he looks out the window and goes who's there yeah <laughs> he just screams she's it. like honey you're just being crazy again and it's like not only is this girl climbing down the tree but she's bringing her cat with her like the cat's trying to climb down the tree with yeah her. oliver and pete arrive at the party and knock on the door when sarah answers at first i thought she was wearing a kkk cloak with the hood up but it turns out she's in a flying nun costume she informs them at the door for some reason that she's not wearing any underwear, and they walk past her inside. In the main room, there are kids in I Dream of Genie, My Favorite Martian, Lily Munster, Flintstone, and Batman costumes. Apparently, it's a 60s television-themed party, but Oliver and Pete don't fit the theme. I think that's funny, because I was like, oh, look at all these generic costumes. But they were specific costumes. Yeah. <laughs> Pete dances for a moment with a girl in the corner to Lou Christie's lightning striking again. Oliver wanders into the kitchen and is followed by Sarah with a knife, but she tosses it lamely over his shoulder and then complains that Pete is ignoring her. Waldo, in a big cowboy outfit, vomits into the sink in the background, annoying his 13-year-old girlfriend, Lucy Brown. They leave together. Another hand withdraws a knife from a kitchen drawer, and we cut outside where Waldo is trying to talk Lucy into sex in his car. She tells him she needs to be home soon because her folks will check her room on their way to bed. Suddenly, in a nearby tree, we see someone in black wearing a rubber mask of Tor Johnson, the former wrestler who appears in many of Ed Wood's films. Waldo's car tires are just spinning in the dirt, so he climbs out to investigate. Did the killer orchestrate this somehow? I, I don't see how. Unless they dug out each tire or he just waited by the car he's like there's no way these tires are gonna work i'm gonna wait right by this car because it's not gonna move waldo tells her to push the gas while he pushes the car from the back but the killer sneaks up on him and stabs him in the neck and chest before he can ever tell her to step on the gas the killer chases her through the woods back toward the party and she falls into a pool in the backyard the killer stabs at her repeatedly in the water and she nearly drowns because she can't swim pete hears her screaming from inside the party and rushes to save her while the killer jumps over a fence to run away. Far from the party, the killer removes his mask and stares at the moon, and we see it's Oliver this time. The next morning, we see a bunch of kids sitting on the stairs at the police station, waiting their turn to speak with Pete's father, John Brady. Pete and Oliver are called in together. He asks them what they remember from the party, and Pete says that it was slow until it wasn't, and Oliver says that he blacked out for the whole party. I don't remember. I don't remember a single detail. I remember everything up until the killing started to happen, and I mm -hmm. can't tell you where I was during that time. John Brady is called away by someone named Barbara, and the boys are released. Barbara is Barbara Moorhead, their neighbor-slash-girlfriend-slash-mother. Yeah. <laughs> we cut to a receptionist at the laboratory. A formerly fat patient leaves a huge platter of pastries at the front desk right before Pete walks in for his first session. The receptionist tells him that they kill rabbits in the back room before sending him in. He walks past a door with the name Dr. Lassange on it, and when he tries to open it, an older lab assistant stops him. I'm sorry, sir, that's restricted. They never allow us in there. Parkinson finds him here and leads Pete away. Inside a room with a window, a young boy is riding a stationary bike, and he has earned enough bike points to buy a soda and a turn on a pinball machine. It's very reminiscent of that early Black Mirror episode. 
Parkinson says the boy couldn't speak when he was given to their facility and he was labeled a vegetable until they started working with him here in the lab. She says the problem boiled down to inconsistent parenting. Their idea was to ignore him until he followed the rules here. You know, it's, it's extraordinary about parents. You know, they, they really should go into training. You know how they are. Eh? One minute they reward you for something and the next minute they're slapping you if you do something wrong. I mean, these people, they're just, they're just sort of amateurs. I'm not sure they should even be allowed to have children. We cut to an open field with a scarecrow in the middle of it, but the scarecrow appears to be a dead body strung up like a scarecrow, and Mr. Brady radios their discovery to the station. Back at the lab, Mrs. Parkinson offers Pete Brady a pill called PRLB58, and it will supposedly make him smarter. She assures him it has no harmful side effects, but he will be capable of anything he wants until it wears off. He seems to be experiencing a high almost instantly, and she sends him on his way. John Brady heads to the morgue to observe the corpses of the two murdered boys. The stabbings are very different, one haphazard and one surgical, but Brady is too big a chicken to even look and asks for written reports instead. The receptionist at the lab clocks out for the night and flicks off all the lights on her way out of the building. She's grabbed from behind by Pete, who invites her out for dinner. At a fancy restaurant, he speaks fluent French with the maitre d'. Maybe because of the pill he took? Like he spontaneously yeah. learned French? But he's also being kind of an asshole. Like, he's like, I'm going to order for her. And, yeah. and then she goes, no, I'm, I'm going to order what I want. Remember the last time that happened? That's right. Tattoo. Mm. I was trying to think of what other movies have dead bodies as scarecrows. I think it's in one of the Children of the Corn movies, isn't it? Oh, I thought you meant something we'd covered. No. I'm just, it, just seems, it just seems familiar to me. Yeah, it seems like something they do in one of those. I've never seen any of the Children of the Corn movies. The girl tells Pete about some of the experiments she's seen at the lab. Later, he walks her home to her sorority, and when the girls learn his dad is the top cop, they make him check their rooms for predators, and he's invited to stay the night. Back at the station, Brady speaks with Donovan about the medical examiner's report and the suggestion that there are two killers. They are interrupted by Detective Shea, sent over from Chicago Homicide, who Brady had reached out to for assistance when a second body turned up. He tells them he took Route 66 from Chicago to this jerk town. That night, we see Mrs. Haskell pull up to the house with no parents, and she calls up to Timothy to announce she's delivering some food. She heads upstairs when he doesn't answer, and pushes right into a bathroom with water running to find Timothy dead in the bathtub with a hand cut off. She calls Mr. Brady at the police station, and then returns to the bathroom and opens the door wider to observe that Timothy's corpse is actually being dismembered by a girl who chases her through the house with a knife. Okay, so let's just imagine, first of all, you're in this house where you think this boy is. Yep, mm -hmm. don't go in that room. So you enter a room where the shower is going. Right. So presumably he might not hear you come mm -hmm. in. Like, I just don't think you ever enter a bathroom with a teenage boy in it. Is he a teenager, though? Because I think she says he's 11 or something like that when she pushes into the door. He looks older than 11 when we see him. Yeah. But she says, like, 11 years old and you still blah, 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 when yeah. she's walking into the room. Okay. So, first of all, don't do that. Second of all, you go in there and you see this hand and you see him, like, dismembered mm -hmm. in the shower. Do you not leave that house immediately because you don't know who else is in there? No, I stick around. <laughs> I I get out of the house. I don't think you stick around. I don't think you just go into the other room, sob, and then, like, 
go look around some more because you hear noises. Because maybe maybe you're in shock at first, but then you hear noises and you get the fuck out. When you realize there might be another person in that room with mm-hmm. the dead that, body. Yeah. That maybe killed the person who you just saw killed? Yeah. Yes. Probably. Haskell reaches a phone and tries to describe the murderer, but her description is cut off when the girl slices open her neck and slashes through the phone line in a single swipe. But all she manages to get out is that it's a female, that she's of a certain age, and that she's a bit overweight. And brown hair. Yeah. But I was like, good for her. Yeah, that that was a great instinct to be like, I'm going to at least describe this person who's about to kill me. Yeah, I mean, God, I don't don't think I, I, I would just be in too shock and too panicked. Yeah. To like do do like the taken like maneuver of just right. like describing what you're seeing as you're getting. In, but also, murdered. what a badass to be like, help! I'm getting killed by a fat chick. Like, <laughs> right as she's stabbing you in the throat. <laughs> just like, <laughs> just be like, fuck you! I'm not fat. The mayor comes to the station and complains about the lack of leads in the investigation. Brady promises to solve this. Pete shows up at the lab to meet with the receptionist Caroline, but she hasn't clocked in yet. For some reason. The police collect piles of records on overweight female students, I guess based on Mrs. Haskell's description, but they just like, let's go, let's start with fat chicks and then work our way down to potential killers. Where are they, where are they getting the records that contain the students' the weights? weights? Yeah. Why is that a part of their student record? But they narrow it down to 135 girls. It's like, how many people the, are at this school? At the school? whole college? Yeah. At the lab, Parkinson leads Pete to his next experimental session. This time he's strapped into a chair in what looks like a soundproof room, an ideal podcast recording space. (laughs) Pete notices some massive syringes and starts freaking out when he realizes he's being modified like the chicken in the classroom. Just as Caroline arrives to trade shifts with the morning receptionist, all the police show up looking to speak with Mrs. Parkinson. Caroline says she's with a patient and Chief of Police Brady says he doesn't care and to let them in now. Just before Parkinson can get the needle into Pete, an alarm rings out and she leaves to answer the call. Chief Brady asks about the lab's work with overweight students and she admits to a very successful weight loss program. He asks for some documentation on their study and apparently he has taken issue with their work in the past and she is hesitant to accept his request. She does agree to hand over a list of people in the program. Caroline, the receptionist, hangs a Be Right Back sign on her desk. Chief Brady notices the door labeled Lassange and is so disturbed that he orders them to open it. Parkinson assures him it's a memorial door from when the man died three years ago. (laughs) They were like, oh, just for no reason, we made a door with his name on it. Open it up. Oh, doctor. Open it up, Parkinson. John, this is all in the past. I know you're under a great deal of pressure. We all are, but... Quit stalling and open the fucking door. Pete slowly works his way loose from the chair in Laboratory 3, the soundproof room. Caroline heads upstairs and tries to open the door to get to Pete, but Parkinson stops her before she can get inside. Parkinson rushes to give Pete his eyeball injection, and he bleeds from the eye. Do you guys recall the last eyeball injection we saw? (laughs) I do. What is that? Now I'm blanking on the movie. We could do this together. What is it? Um, it's the one with the, the resurrecting the dead, uh, with, uh, Grandpa oh. Joe. Oh, um. Full body cast. Yeah, that's the, the cliffside one, the, what was it called? Dead and Buried? Dead and Buried is correct. We cut to Chief Brady driving to a cemetery and buying a bouquet of roses from a kid, selling them on the roadside with <laughs> a suspiciously New Zealand accent. Yeah. He's like, you got a permit for to sell these flowers, kid? 
Parkinson wakes Pete in the lab and advises him that their work is done. She tells him it's almost 7 p.m. and he's invited to collect his paycheck on the way out. Parkinson sits down at a computer and types in 41881, 9 p.m. Subject, Peter Brady. Victim, John Brady. She starts to type a location and we cut away to Pete and Caroline driving. They head to Steak and Shake. Back at home, Mrs. Moorhead sits down across from Chief Brady and he lays out a theory that somehow the deceased Lassange is behind all this. Apparently sometime in the past, Brady launched some attack on Lassange's work and all the men who sided with him have now lost sons over it. He mentions an opportunity he missed to kill Lassange in the past and he regrets it. Moorhead thinks he sounds crazy and advises him to move on from this fixation. Inside the restaurant, Pete has barely started to place an order when he suddenly collapses to the floor and hits a table on the way down. Caroline and a police officer escort him to a bathroom where he pees a steady stream of blood oh, man. toward a toilet. Yeah. Not into it, though. Yeah, like, so the next person who's going to go in there is going to go, what the hell? Yeah. Like, something really terrible happened in I here. I kind of like that we never see a reaction to it, though. Yeah. When he reemerges from the bathroom, Caroline offers to take him home. Chief Brady and Mrs. Moorhead are driving together at night, and he stops at the cemetery and starts breaking into Lasange's mausoleum. What did he tell her he was doing? Because <laughs> she put on, like, high heels and a dress. Mm -hmm. Like, did he tell her he was going to take her out dancing, and then he drove to the cemetery and started hammering on a mausoleum? Going grave robbing. Desecrating. <laughs> We're going desecrating. <laughs> like, I thought you, you mean dancing? dancing? Okay, let me get my dancing <laughs> shoes. No, I desecrating. Moorhead is convinced he's lost his mind, but he manages to grind a concrete tile out of the wall and then drags out the coffin behind it. Once it's all the way out, he opens the box and he shows her the contents. There's just a couple of femurs inside. <laughs> Why are there just femurs in this box? I don't get it. He rushes home to get his gun and load it, and Pete asks, what's going on? He doesn't respond to anyone, and he heads back to his office for another gun. Moorhead explains to Pete that Pete's mom worked with Lassange before she married his dad. After she had Pete, she decided to quit the job, and during one of her last shifts, she never came home. Brady went out to look for her and found her unconscious at her desk, and we see all this in a black-and-white flashback. He brought her to a hospital where she described her condition as feeling like drowning, and after about an hour, she passed away. Your father just wouldn't believe the reports. You know, she had this history of asthma, but he wouldn't believe it. He always believed that there was a connection between Lassange and her death. As she tells this part of the story, we see Chief Brady breaking into the lab at night with a shotgun. He follows Dr. Parkinson through the building into a well-lit room with big, heavy orange steel doors, and he quickly finds himself locked in. Suddenly, Parkinson addresses him from a television mounted to the ceiling, and I'm shocked he didn't just shoot the screen. Yeah, I was like, why, why are you allowing her to speak? Yeah. Mr. Brady, I see you've found your way. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, I can hear you. <laughs> like, he's not pissed <laughs> off, and he's just like, yep, yeah, what's up? Pete drives Caroline to the school to get his dad, but he's tweaking out behind the wheel. Caroline tries to convince him to pull over, and he shoves her face away so hard that he knocks her unconscious against the passenger side window. Her head is bleeding and the window is cracked. Chief Brady searches the room for a way out and speaks past Parkinson directly to Lassange, who he is confident is there somewhere. A door opens and Pete steps inside and Brady is disturbed to see his son all tweaked out. My God, kid, what do they do to you? Oh shit, what do they do? What did you do? She instructs Pete to steal his father's shotgun and he does. 
Then he turns around and takes his father's revolver as well. Out in the parking lot, some guys playing frisbee in the middle of the night <laughs> stumble upon Caroline knocked out in the car. You ever play night frisbee? <laughs> no, I Perfect. guess not. Back in the locked room, Pete forces his father into a small silver chair and binds his hands behind his back. More doors open, and an elevator lifts the elderly lab assistant in a wheelchair into view. He rolls up to Chief Brady and removes his glasses so he can start peeling off his old man makeup in sections to reveal he is, in fact, Lassange. Okay. I've got so <laughs> many questions. Why were you pretending to be an old man? Why yeah. were you pretending to be an old man? Did you just now remove your legs? Because you were walking two and three scenes ago. No, he's he's had prosthetic legs this whole time but his real legs were in the, in coffin, the coffin and they've right. rotted why? away completely but then why is he in a wheelchair now i don't know and he makes some <laughs> kind of a comment like he had to pay for his life with legs yeah <laughs> it's like what does that mean did like the coroner found just legs and was like yes this is the whole person yeah let's so bury it this has to be him it has to be at least 25 percent of the person this counts Burying it. it should be like the the dollar bill situation. Right, it has it to be, be at more least than 50%. fifty. Yeah, it's got to be yeah. like fifty one percent, and then that counts. That's not true though, because you could just be a Disney. <laughs> you know, that guy's ninety percent dead, but he's still around. Anyway, <laughs> they also, buried they buried some femurs for some reason. His name is the blood. He's just his name's Lassange. the Lassange. Isn't Sangra blood? Is it? Doesn't it have to have an R? Is it? I don't know. I don't speak the languages. Lassange blames Chief Brady for taking Pete's mom away from the laboratory. He tells Brady that he's prepared a demonstration of his new mind control drug. He puts a scalpel into Pete's hands and tells him to carry out instructions he was given earlier, and Pete starts dragging the blade along his own wrists, slicing open the veins. But he says, don't worry, we wouldn't hurt him, so everything's going to be fine. It's like, it doesn't look fine. Yeah. Looks like he just opened up his arms the whole way to his elbow. Next, he gives Pete a full knife and new instructions. Pete, kill your father. Chief Brady pleads with his son, and suddenly, Pete stabs Lassange in the neck repeatedly. Ah! No! No! Pete, no! Kill your father! Kill your father! Ah! You are my father. I was laughing so hard. Was now, like, here's the thing. What? Does he mean that in the psychosis, like, you've hypnotized me? No. It's he means literally. Literally. It turns same. out, DNA-wise, mm -hmm. you impregnated my mom, and I somehow know that. Yeah, exactly. He somehow knows it, or instinctively, or he was told by his mother and never told his father. Yeah. So he means that literally when he says, you are my father, and he kills the guy. Lassange bleeds out almost instantly, and the police are already at the door to wrap things up. But they pause in a bizarre freeze frame in the doorway. <laughs> yeah, I, I love, I do love that Parkinson's just like nopes out of that situation. Yeah. Just like, and they well, just find her. <laughs> Wait, so did Lassange know? I don't know if he did. I don't think he did because he he specifically <laughs> said kill your father. Well, but like he could have said it in in the way that he wasn't thinking about it. Mm. You know, literally. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. He's your father, but he ain't your daddy. You're the other way around. Yeah. He didn't <laughs> yes. say kill your daddy, though. Pete is carried away on a gurney with his arms bandaged to an ambulance. Lassange is put in another ambulance, and Parkinson is led away in cuffs. Sometime later, we cut to a bar where Pete, his father, and Donovan wait in suits and corsages. We cut to Chief Brady marrying Mrs. Moorhead, 
and we're treated to more Tangerine Dream, and I wish they just scored every movie in the 80s. <laughs> I love all the music for this whole wedding scene. Outside, everybody tosses rice at the happy couple, and then we get a quick montage of clips of all the film's characters accompanied by the actors' names, like the mm-hmm. beginning of a sitcom. Too many cooks. <laughs> this is what I like about really like independent films that are like borderline outsider art is that mm-hmm. they do things like this where you're like i guess that's a thing people do but they don't do it on this kind of movie like that's yeah a, that's a weird choice to end with but i like it and that's the end of the film i guess everything's okay everything's like, great like do they know who was involved because there is at least two other kids committing murders right or three yes yeah. because they never they never caught the overweight girl. They never caught the unknown person from the beginning. Well, but nobody's forcing them to do anything anymore, so they're not going to murder anymore. So, yeah. they, and, and, it, and it, it wasn't their fault in the first place. Does it work like scanners, where you literally have to type it into the computer and send the information to people's brains? Because it looked like she was ordering up a hit. But on he that didn't computer. tell him to kill his father through a computer. So. Yeah, I think she did. Oh, because she said. Here's the person, here's the victim, here's the time that it's going to happen at. No, no, she I, I she, she did in that moment, but at the end when he's like, kill your father, right, he just yeah. says it. And, and I don't think that she was giving instructions. I think she was just keeping Making the record. Making a log of like, yeah. here's what's going to happen tonight. And the chicken was doing it auditorily. Yeah, she didn't type that up. She didn't text the chicken. <laughs> she didn't have to tweet at it. <laughs> uh, but, I mean... But we could still have like a Manchurian candidate situation where these they have other long term instructions that yeah. they're supposed to follow. It's just Manchurian University. Because what was the so the the he Lesange 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 was getting revenge on the kids on Mister Brady of Mister Brady's rebellion, I guess. Like Mister Brady was like, "Hey, you guys screwed everything up." And he got the mayor on his side and he got this other these other people on his yeah. side and said, we're going to like shut down your laboratory because what you're doing is terrible and you caused my wife's death. And so he's like, kill the mayor's kid, kill this person's kid. I'm going to mm-hmm. kill your kid now or I'm going to get your kid to kill you. Yeah, but he waited many years to do that. I don't know how long he waited. Yeah. Well, because obviously we have Michael Murphy playing himself in the flashback mm-hmm. with slightly darker hair, I guess. But... I don't know why he's wearing this old person makeup because it doesn't look like he's aged that much unless they're implying that he's like But they, I think they are implying that the mother was in college when this relationship was happening. Mm-hmm. I guess it's been 17 years or something and, and, like and that. And she, ha- she at least had the baby, but then she died. And, you know, they were alone long enough that they clipped their toenails at the kitchen table. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which takes a few weeks. <laughs> and then... The son was able to graduate from high school. <laughs> so that, yeah, that takes some time too. Um, Yeah, it's weird. I like it though. I kind of like it. I'm good. I, I'm going to give it a thumbs down. I give it a thumbs up. That's a thumbs down for me. It's I, not going to be ranked super high, but it gets a thumbs up because it's fun. And uh, I really like this cast. I, th- I think it's a weird collection of people that I'm surprised were in this movie for like an almost nothing budget Australian film. Yeah, because, I mean, I I love Michael Murphy and I love Louise Fletcher. I I feel bad for Louise Fletcher because she's, she's like, an Oscar winner at this point, right? I don't know why she's in this. Yeah, and but but she made a lot of, she did a lot of this stuff in the 80s. Did she? Yeah, because, like, Invader, Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars. She's also in Strange Invaders. Yeah, and and Firestarter. 
she she's in all these kind of weird firestarter is at least like a stephen king adaptation which yeah. was high profile at the time but but she's only in like like maybe 10 minutes of the movie yeah her and art carney play a married couple but her her part in in the sort of sequel to this strange invaders mm-hmm. is also very small and seemingly unnecessary but i i have no desire to to ever watch this movie again yeah, yeah. i'm with you there what are we thinking letterboxd i have it pretty low uh, I have it at 138 out of 146. It is below Full Moon High, but above So Fine. I have it at 138. Oh, good call. <laughs> That's where it belongs. Uh, but I have it below Secondhand Hearts and above The Prowler. I have it at 119, <laughs> where it belongs, um, which is just under Student Bodies and just above The Four Seasons. Our director here was Michael Laughlin. Two years later, he directs Strange Invaders. He also produced Tulane Blacktop. The writer here was Bill Condon. He wrote and directed Gods and Monsters. He wrote Chicago. He wrote and directed Kinsey. He wrote and directed Dreamgirls. He directed the last two Twilight movies and the Beauty and the Beast remake. He also plays Brian Morgan in this film. That's the first victim, the mayor's son. Mm-hmm. And the, the weird dead scarecrow. The music here comes from Tangerine Dream. Before this, they scored Sorcerer. We've heard their work in the soundtrack to Thief, and they also provide scores for Legend, Firestarter, The Keep. Another connection to Firestarter. Yep. Cinematographer Louis Horvath, previously DP'd Black Samurai and Cinderella 2000. He's back for Laughlin's next two films. The editor here was Petra von Olfen, who's just credited as Petra, and they are the sound editor on Dazed and Confused as well. Michael Murphy played Chief of Police John Brady. We've seen him so far in MASH and An Unmarried Woman. We'll see him next in Cloak and Dagger, and later he returns in Shocker, Batman Returns, Clean Slate, Magnolia. He also showed up in Path to 9-11, directed by our friend Cyrus Narasta. Louise Fletcher played Barbara Moorhead. She's Grandma in Flowers in the Attic. Helen Rosemond in Cruel Intentions and Kai Wynn in 14 Star Trek Deep Space Nines, but she is definitely best known for her Oscar-winning portrayal of Nurse Ratchet in Milos Forman's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. She was only in 14 DS9 episodes? Yeah, apparently. God, she was such a, an amazing character Did on that Did you know that, that Q is only in four episodes of Star Trek? That's not true. No, that's not, true, not at true at all. Yeah. No, he's in a bunch. <laughs> Dan <laughs> Shore played Pete Brady. We've seen him in Wise Blood and Backroads so far. He's back next season as Ram in Tron, and later he's Billy the Kid yeah. in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Fiona Lewis played Gwen Parkinson. She's Susan Charles in The Fury. And later, she's Dr. Margaret Kanker in Inner Space. Arthur Dignam played Dr. Lassange. He's a Baz Luhrmann regular with appearances in Moulin Rouge, Australia, and The Great Gatsby. He also appears in a 1987 film called Ghosts Can Do It, not to be confused with 1989's Ghosts Can't Do It. Oh, God. There okay. are two films with that title, <clears throat> although I get the impression that the 1987 film was released as a different title first and then changed the name to Ghosts Can Do It as an answer to 1989's Ghosts Can't Do It. Even though it came out first. Even though it came out two years earlier. I think they re-released it with a new title specifically so they could put it next to the other movie in video stores and people, and people like, get what confused. is this? Yeah, Because CAN is all caps and the title Ghosts Can Do It, so it sounds like it's disagreeing with something. <laughs> Apparently, Klaus Kinski was offered this part first, 
and for the doctor role that and he turned it down makes sense to me it, it makes sense to me because he's only in like two scenes and yeah. that's what klaus kinski likes to do it's just show up for a weekend and be weird <laughs> day young played caroline she was kate rambo in rock and roll high school she's a waitress in space balls she's amy and running man mrs cassidy in the serpent and the rainbow and detective harrison in an episode of baywatch nights we'll get there don't worry folks mark mcclure played oliver meyerhoff he's dave mcfly in back to the future we saw him last as jimmy olsen in superman and before that as heavy duty dubois in used cars scott brady played shay that's the detective from chicago or wherever uh he was sheriff frank in gremlins charles lane played donovan the older cop he has hundreds of credits dating back to 1930 he was nosy in mr smith goes to washington he was henderson in you can't take it with you and a real estate salesman in it's a wonderful life he lived to be 102, passing away in 2007. He's also an airport manager in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. He voices the lawyer in Aristocats. ta ra boom ta boom And we saw him last season as the grandpa in Little Dragons with the little ninja kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Elizabeth Cheshire played Lucy Brown. We saw her last as Bonnie Stern in Airport 77. That's the little girl who gets to go on the plane because her class drew a picture. After that, she's Darcy Dumar in Melvin and Howard, the daughter of the titular Melvin character. Terrence Donovan played Mr. Brown, one of the parents downstairs. He played one of the cops during the Consider Yourself musical number in Oliver. We also had him as Captain Hunt in Breaker Morant last season. Hmm. All these Australian things. Yeah. Nagila Dixon played a dancer at the party. She's an Oscar winner for costume design on The Lord of the Rings Return of the King. Mark Hadlow played a dancer at the party. He was Dory in the Hobbit movies. He's also in Meet the Feebles and King Kong for Peter Jackson. And Petta Rudder played another dancer at the party. She was Udana, the white mystic ranger in 32 episodes of Power Rangers Mystic Force. That's all the credits I have for this one. Uh, I have a couple of uh, uh, side notes because the pro- I was looking at the producers, oh, okay. and I recognized a couple of names. One, uh, John Daly, uh, only because he was the director of a film that my company produced. Oh, okay. We were producing films uh, with a, a film called The Aryan Couple with Martin Landau, and uh, and the other uh, the other producer I only know mostly as an actor, David Hemmings. Oh um, right, yeah, yeah. I like uh, he's got this really great voice. Didn't we just have him in something? Uh, did we? I think he was in Just a Gigolo, and he might have directed Just a Gigolo. Yeah, he played he played Captain Herman Kraft in Just a Gigolo. Yeah, and he directed it. And he directed it. I think that's everything for Strange Behavior. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. What's that sound? We got that's right, it's a new patron, Michael Burgett. As a patron of the show, Michael now has access to 3870s reviews and 40 minisodes. Thanks so much, Michael, for supporting the show. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Nightmare, which IMDb describes like so. A mental patient embarks on a murder spree upon escaping from an institution. We leave you now with a trailer, if there is one, for Nightmare. 
yourself for the most intensely shocking motion picture of our time. <coughs> Nightmare, the motion picture everyone is talking about. Hello, Steve. Friday the 13th, special effects director Tom Savini. Now comes Nightmare. Kathy? Listening to the trailer for Bad Movies Rule, and lucky you, you are about to start a journey of epic proportions. Epic proportions. <laughs> That's right. This is a podcast. I mean, the name is on the can. You know what's in the box, right? We're talking about bad movies. Bad movies, the rule. Well, sometimes, right? So these aren't films, and sometimes people will see the movies on our list and go, how dare you talk about that movie? That's not a bad movie. Yeah, right. Well, we just talk about bad in the sense that maybe the critics ignored it, right? Or it didn't get any awards. Sure. Like the movies of the common people. This is a blue-collar podcast. I mean, we've got plumbers, shoe salesmen, mechanics. We've got... What does Joe do? No one even knows what he does. We've got a furniture mover. <laughs> He moves furniture. That's right. We have also been filmmakers ourselves. We've made many independent films, and this gives us a soft spot for some of these movies out there, and I think I think you're going to have fun listening to us talk about it. And by the end... You're going to know if it's bad. Is it a bad movie, full stop? Is it a bad movie that rules, or is it actually straight up a good movie? There are some good movies out there. And so we'll see, and you guys are invited to come along with us, pick apart each one of these things, and some we'll put back together, and some we're just going to leave in a pile behind us. I can't wait. Awesome. Well, we hope you guys are going to join us, and we appreciate every single one of you. Thanks for coming along.